0: Each week, we pick a virtue to be mastered, in order, before following to the next. Download the linked PDF schedule and follow along. At the beginning of each day, we ask ourselves, what good shall we do? At the end of each day, we examine our adherence to the listed 13 virtues. The catch is, we will strive for perfection in one and only one, in order, beginning with temperance. Ben Franklin left behind the addendum, eat not to dullness, drink not to elevation. Today, we begin with sleep, diet, and meditation habits to be adopted, then move on to philosophy and the attainment of joy and virtue. Enjoy. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. Let us begin with three quick tips for the next seven days. For the next seven days, turn your phone off at 9 p.m. Try this. You can do it. At 9 p.m. and from 9 p.m. to 10 p.m., read and read only. Allow yourself to study something, okay? Don't allow yourself anything else. Just read from 9 to 10. At 10 p.m., sit for 20 minutes. There is a podcast called Mindfulness in 8 Weeks by Michael J. It is the best, in my opinion, free meditation app that has um, guided meditations at 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. 40 minutes, that's actually how I found out about meditation. His voice is South African. Wonderful and very helpful. So check that out. From 10 to 10.20, try to do a 20-minute sitting meditation. If you want to, do a 5-minute one, do a 10-minute one even. Um, Start a little earlier and do a 40-minute one if you please. But from 10 to 10.20, do a sitting. From 10.20 to 10.30, lights out. Get ready for bed. Do what you need to do to make sure that there's no light coming into your room. This part, okay, is very, very, very important. I heard it from a wonderful teacher, and it has worked wonders for me. Your phone is already off, right? We established that an hour and a half ago at 9 p.m. The best thing that you can do is to put your phone somewhere away from your bed. If you're using your phone as your alarm, stick it in the corner away from your bed, Um, with the added benefit that you have to get up when it goes off um, and go turn it off. If you're using some other Amazon device or Google device, use that all the better. Put your phone somewhere else. I wake up with my Amazon device. It sends a uh, 15-minute recording of the 1812 Overture on Spotify by Tchaikovsky. It's the best song ever. After I read War and Peace, I listened to it, and it almost made me shed a tear. So check that song out. I would recommend using a music alarm. It's kind of cool. 15 minutes, you can just listen to it, and it makes waking up a lot easier. By way of waking up, set your alarm for 6 a.m. I had a professor tell me this. It has been one of the coolest little morning routines that I've ever heard of. It involves waking up at 6 a.m. He says, you know, go to the bathroom, do whatever you need to do, get a glass of water, drink the entire glass of water in full, fill up another one, come back to wherever you're doing your sitting and sit. For 20 minutes, do a sitting. You can listen to the podcast, the Michael Skolson guided meditation. It will completely change the way that your morning works. After that, easy does it, start your day. The second tip, okay? Shower and shower cold. You can do this in the morning, you can do this in the evening, however you want to do it, but try incorporating a cold shower into your daily routine or your weekly routine, or however you're feeling that day. I think it is a wonderful, almost stoic exercise in not only how your body feels with sensations, but also with accepting the realities of external things that happen to you, right? And and realizing that coldness on your skin isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just a thing. It's just a sensation. One way to incorporate a cold shower is the following. I heard this from a friend. He was from a Nordic country, and he said that... um, Some of the showers um, away from his home actually didn't get cold enough. So he'd turn on the showers as cold, as cold, as cold as it goes, rinse himself completely off um, without soap, and then turn the shower off, turn the water off, and then use soap to wash his hair, wash his body, whatever, turn the water back on, rinse off, all done, doesn't take five minutes, and in his opinion, uses less water. Either way, thinking about ways to incorporate a cold shower Will completely change your life. And it's something that I had never thought about. Number three is diet based, okay? And it's easy. Pick one meal and double the amount of greens that you eat for it, or just eat primarily greens for that meal. This can be breakfast, this can be lunch, this can be dinner. If you're looking for meal options or recipes that you can incorporate a large amount of greens into your diet with, Look up the Daniel fast. It is a wonderful fast. I just learned about it last week. It's from the Bible. Pretty much you uh, just cut out dairy and meat and some other superfluous stuff out of your diet. But try doubling the amount of greens that you eat at one meal or over the course of the next seven days. Those are the three tips that we'll use for the next seven days as we think about temperance. Okay. And getting into the theme here, Benjamin Franklin, again, we talked about this in Confinement. He set out to achieve moral perfection, and obviously he's writing when he's 79 years old in his book saying, I did not achieve moral perfection, no way, but I did make progress along the way, and I did drag other people with me down that rabbit hole of self-improvement, which is a noble thing to do, right? And it starts with temperance. It's obviously, it has 13 steps. It goes temperance, silence, order. So on and so forth. And you can look it up. at Benjamin Franklin's autobiography this is where it's from. But he begins with temperance, and he has this list. Um, I'll link a, a an image rendition of it into a link where you can find it. And pretty much, he puts these black dots next to the day. So he has all of the thirteen virtues on the left hand side. And then the days going on the right hand side of this column and row, little setup on a page. And in the T column for temperance, during the Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday of the week that he's got listed there, he has a little quote that says, Drink not to dullness, or excuse me, eat not to dullness, drink not to elevation. And I think, in in my opinion, I think that it goes deeper than this, that he this this idea of temperance can be kind of applied into different aspects of our lives, especially with our phones. But when he failed, at night he would sit down from 9 to 10 p.m., he would sit down and uh, examine his day. And if he did fail in any one of these areas, Over the course of that day, he would put a dot. Sometimes he had two dots. They're big black dots, and on the page he says he wrote it in red ink, and he put a black dot on it where you can see. And he'd, he'd see his week. The important thing is he's keeping track of the other virtues. Okay, keeping track of when he spoke when he shouldn't have, or when he wasn't. He was doing something out of order. He um, wasn't resolute in something he's saying. He wasn't modest. He wasn't humble. He's still keeping track of those virtues, but he's not focusing on perfection in them. I think is an exercise in and of itself but the important part is with respect to temperance he is trying to achieve perfection in that first week and then moving on to the second week for silence so for the next seven days and I've been trying this for the past seven days focus on temperance and it begins obviously with the way that his little two-clause rendition of The Virtue Goes, right? Eat not to dullness, drink not to elevation. We talked about this before, and I mentioned that I'd want to ask Benjamin Franklin exactly what he means by dullness, right? Is he saying don't eat out of boredom because that would obviously be great advice? And I think we understand what he means when he says drink not to elevation. Seneca has a wonderful quote for people who are thinking if temperance means don't drink alcohol at all, absolutely not. Um, Seneca actually has a wonderful quote talking about how sometimes it is important to get out of doors, to go on long walks, to change scenery, um, but also to drink and and drink wine, he mentions, but he, he says even to become to the point of drunkenness. And um, if you're ever thinking about kind of justifying yourself for drinking a little too much, you can read that passage by Seneca. But what what Benjamin Franklin is kind of telling us is don't use food or don't use alcohol or don't use any of these pleasures as a crutch, right? And that is the foundation of this first virtue. He fails, I failed. And over the course of this week, it is useful to use our diet and our habits as something to do without for doing without's sake. I think this is such an important idea. A key aspect of this process too is constancy. And in order to kind of embark on this journey of self-control, of self-discipline, of doing without for doing without's sake, it's important to be constant in it. And it's also important, in order to be constant, in it, to be having fun doing it. And to be selfish to a point where you're doing this for yourself and for nobody else. And I found at that meditation retreat something so beautiful that was, I feel like I came to it of my own volition, and then that night during the discourse, the teacher mentioned it also, that we're doing all these meditations during this 10-day retreat, we're meditating for long periods of time, 10 hours a day, I mean, it is, it's called Vipassana, if you haven't heard of it before, check it out. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm getting real benefits from this. There's scientific benefits from this. My friend Ilari Makala has talked about these on a previous podcast. There's benefits to it. And a lot of times when we're doing things that we think are so beneficial to ourselves personally, the first thing we want to do is to tell other people about it and to get them on board. And I caution you with this, um, not because it is a bad thing to be able to do that, but to show that there is a two-step process here that you improve yourself and by improving yourself, you, you serve kind of as a beacon of hope and of light to other people. And instead of hoping that somebody else would do this so that they would be happy so that you could in turn be happy because they're happy, you be happy first and watch how happy that other person becomes. These are the people in our life that we're thinking about all the time. They're also the people that When we are in other people's company and we find ourselves talking about other people, these are the people that we're talking about. So think about that. Seneca, again, comes through beautifully to get to the second part of what we're talking about when it comes to temperance. Here's what he says. Quote, The highest good is in the inflexibility of an unyielding mind, its foresight, its sublimity, It's soundness. It's freedom. It's harmony. It's beauty. End quote. Such a beautiful idea here about what we're really after. Obviously, we talked about this in contentment. We are after a tranquility of mind, but we're after a process. It's like sharpening a sword. And we are altering the ability of our mind to be able to concentrate, to be able to focus useful attention towards the advancement of some goal. The Dhammapada is a text that I got in a Penguin Classic set of 80 little manuscripts. So cool. Such a great gift idea. But I was reading through it and I found this quote about the wild mind. It's an interesting idea. Quote, The mind is fickle and flighty. It flies after fancies whenever it likes. It is difficult indeed to restrain, but it is a great good to control the mind. A mind self controlled is a source of great joy. This brings us to a conversation about the definition of temperance and its ability to maybe be misconstrued in our modern society. Obviously, when you list temperance, people might think you're talking about teetotalism which I found out this week is actually the complete abstinence from alcohol. Obviously, that's a great thing. If you can completely abstain from alcohol, go ahead and do that. But that's not what we're advocating for here. The Greeks listed this twice in their ancient texts. One is Sophosune, one is Encratei. I butchered those two, but they're both translated loosely as self-restraint. And the King James Bible uses Encratei twice. And those are both translated as temperance. This came down to us in English, of course, from Latin. And Latin took this Greek word and turned it into tempero, which is referring to something that is restraint from force or anger. Obviously, you can use the word to temper a sword using heat um, to restrain its compounds and then cool it. and that is a beautiful little idea of kind of what we're trying to do with the mind finishing in the western tradition plato has four ways that he views temperance or self-control or this is he's talking about sophrosune so the first of the second renditions of of uh, greek words for self-control and in Carmedes, one of his early dialogues he describes it in four ways one who has quietness one who has modesty one who does his own business and one who knows himself he later goes back and looks at the fourth one and says well if anybody knows themselves then they don't need anything else the chinese also have two ways of looking at this and the chinese word for nature kind of plays off of what plato is thinking here about self knowledge now the chinese word for nature is ziran and zi is 自己的自, and it means self right the word zi means self, and ran means that way. And when you put them together, it means nature. Some people translate that word as self-so. This makes one think of history in the Taoist tradition. There is a wonderful philosopher called Zhuangzi. Zhuangzi is an ancient Chinese hippie, an ancient Chinese jokester, an ancient Chinese grandpa who... Messes around with people all the time. His best friend is a logician named Huaizheng, and the guy tries to make logical arguments with him. Zhuangzi always uses humor to get to a point in the argument where he shows that we don't really know anything at all, and it's almost it's a it's in stark contrast to the Confucians, who you know you could debate this, say that everything that is known is already known, and we just need to study all of that. That the Taoists believe in the way of nature. Now. What does that have to do with temperance? Zhuangzi and the people who have written after him about what he said have brought up this interesting idea about xiao yaoyou and the qi wu lun. So xiao yaoyou is the idea that a person, understanding that they live inside of the renjianjie or the, the world inhabited by people, can within themselves be completely free and open. Victor Frankel um, embodies this. The, the way I learned about this story is we were learning about Taoism. We were reading our first texts of the Zhuangzi in Taiwan. And our professor said: if you want to learn something about Taoism before we start reading these Chinese texts, read A Man's Search for Meaning by Victor Frankel. And I highly recommend the book. It is his story about going into the concentration camps during World War II and he had his life work he's like a psychoanalyst or something and he had his life work his life work was taken away from him but while he was there inside of the camp he found ultimate freedom within inside of himself he's walking one day in the snow barefooted and he's looking at the camp where he knows his wife is probably dying and he goes into his mind he retreats into his mind and he finds this place this physical place that he's imagining and achieves true contentment and has detached himself fully from the sensations of the world. And as Zhuangzi would put it, and as my professor put it, I'm so glad I read that book before we started. Was that Xiao Yao Yao? This idea of free and easy wandering is how you can translate it. Is a purely individual thing, right? And that the individual, it doesn't matter where he's living, what's going on, he always has the means to be able to liberate himself, and to be able to achieve true freedom. And I think that that begins with temperance. Going without and being able to detach yourself from the sensations and to be able to observe them objectively. Now, the second side of what Zhuangzi is saying is called the qi lun which means that wu or all of the, all of the animals and beings in the world, of which you are a part, nature, everything, has its place in this balance and it contrasts of course with the Confucian idea of balance that everybody has their place and they should stay in it. The Taoists have kind of a cooler idea on this in my opinion that nature as it works balances itself and when you combine the two ideas you have you as you existing in this free and easy wandering inside of these constraints that we talked about and containment and confinement, right? But again, you also live within this greater amalgamation of living beings in the world, qi And qi, this word, means uh, to put things in order. Like um, if you want to rule your country, 先其其家, first put your house in order is what they say and combining these two ideas that is the Taoist tradition towards temperance it's kind of an individual living within the collective understanding that the sensations um, can be detached from existence the confucians bring up this idea and their rendition of the zhongyong or the middle way and the ritual conduct that is advocated for, and the temperate behavior that is also advocated in the Confucian tradition might be a little more in line with what we view in the Western tradition as temperance. Now, the Taoists always make fun of the Confucians. the Confucians always put down the Taoists, and this is kind of how Chinese society has worked. They have this blend. Chinese society has this blend of Taoism and Confucianism, and then oh no, Buddhism shows up to China. You have this guy called Huineng and some other people, they bring Buddhism into China. It's a really long story how it happened. But then they bring in the Indian tradition. We already talked about the Dhammapada, but the Indian tradition has kind of grabbed these Buddhist ideas and mixed them in with Hindu ideas. But then these ideas with all their different um, views towards God and sex and Abstinence, they bring it into China. And the Taoist tradition, especially with regard to sex, is kind of interesting. Taoist priests will be in the court advising the emperor how many of the 90 some odd concubines he needs to sleep with over the course of one month according to the moon and the stars. And for the ancient Chinese, it's kind of like a science. It's really interesting to read about these early Buddhist scholars come into China with their texts begin a long generational process of translating them. Now these Taoist monks that are translating it, obviously, and this is kind of funny, Alan Watts points this out, they leave out the parts about abstinence from certain types of conduct. But either way, you have this Chinese Buddhist tradition that eventually goes into Japan, turns into Zen there, but turns into the Chan tradition inside of China. Obviously also a temperate tradition focusing again on the sensations on depriving yourself on doing without almost to the point of aesthetics but not indulging in aesthetics the stoics always like to make fun of the epicureans or the uh, the aesthetics that are roaming around greece the cynics but they point out that even though these people do without way over what they're comfortable with accepting doing without for doing without sake is still a powerful tool to control this wild mind of ours. Again, in the Christian tradition, the ideas towards temperance are about reining in the pleasures. Epictetus, a wonderful philosopher, a Stoic philosopher, back, um, he's Greek, he was a slave, and His master gives him education. Maybe he was of good family before he became a slave. But anyway, he became a philosopher and he gave these dialogues in Greek to young Romans on the up and up. Here is an extended version of two of his quotes about pleasure and pain being your master. Quote, for what is a master? One is not a master of another man, but death and life and pleasure and hardship are his masters. End quote. He goes on to say, who is your master? He who has authority over any of the things upon which you set your heart and wish to avoid. Therefore, the principal task in life is this, distinguish matters and weigh them against one another and say to yourself, externals are not under my control. Moral choice is under my control. Where am I to look for the good and for the evil? within me in that which is my own, end quote. And what better to begin with than the daily habits that we have all at some point decided that we garner some type of pleasure from, some type of earthly pleasure from, some type of pleasure that comes from the stomach. If we can begin with these And rein them in. We might be doing our health a good favor, and that's fine, but it is more an exercise for the mind. Seneca brings this up here in one quote When pleasures have corrupted both mind and body, nothing seems to be tolerable, not because suffering is hard, but because the sufferer is soft. For why is it that we are thrown into a rage by somebody's cough or a sneeze, by negligence and chasing a fly away? by a dog's hanging around or dropping of the key that is slipped from the hands of a careless servant the poor wretch whose ears are hurt by the grating of a bench dragged across the floors will he be able to endure with equanimity the strife of public life and the abuse rained down on him in the assembly or in the senate house end quote We must be able to make the distinction here between pleasure and joy. Eating a great meal and having pleasure in it almost is as fickle as sticking your hand through smoke, right? It looks beautiful when you see the smoke coming off of a burning incense or a candle or something, but then you try to grab onto it and all goes away. And it's almost like all of the pleasures that we experience in our life We just want to think about what it felt like before and then recreate that situation. And then when we feel it again, it's almost as if we didn't even feel it at all. Because as soon as you feel it, it's gone. It's elusive. And deeper than that, and something more virtuous, is joy. And what can you find joy in if you're essentially, from one point of view, keeping yourself devoid of some of these pleasures, keeping yourself disciplined, restrained, confined. All of these words that seem as if they are the antithesis of freedom. How could you within such constraints be able to find freedom and joy and happiness and love? I would point to you to look To the times when you've actually struggled through something and think about how much more pleasure you derive, in a different sense, from the memory of that. From at the time you knew that it was tough and that you didn't want to keep going. But when you think back to it, you derive more joy from that one memory than from the steak dinner that you had two weeks ago or from the big indulging breakfast that you had yesterday. And this also doesn't mean engaging in complete aesthetics. It doesn't mean... Completely changing the way that your diet works or keeping yourself away from all different types of things that you might think are pleasures. It's simply beginning with the observation about why you're doing things. Instead of eating for the taste or for the pleasure or for the idea that you're eating in a place or you're eating things that other people don't have the chance to eat, eat simply and eat for your own sustenance. To attack the second clause, thinking about drinking not to elevation, think about it in its plain definition. If you're feeling down, don't take a drink to get up. If you're with friends and you want to have a drink, so be it. For everybody, this is going to be different about diet and about drinking. But the important thing to understand that this is about modesty and observation. This is about thinking... About your mind, why these impulses, these ideas, thinking, oh, I'll go have this tonight for dinner or this for lunch, or I'll have a, a beer here or there or with a friend or whatever, analyzing these impulses as they come up and almost disassociating them with ourselves. When they come up, and this is why meditation is so useful, in my opinion, you can sit there with your thoughts, especially when. If you decide to take the seven-day challenge and in the morning for 20 minutes, you get up and have a sitting, some people say that this is kind of a cleanliness thing, wiping out or purifying the mind from eight hours of sleep, and sitting there with your thoughts. And I think sitting in the morning right after you wake up is one of the most pure, best times to do it, and if you're tired and you don't want to do it, keep up. And do it anyway and sit there with your thoughts. And as they come up, as they arise, if you're thinking about the breath, or you're thinking about the sensations, again, the Shiskolson podcast is wonderful for this. But if you're sitting there with your thoughts, it is a wonderful exercise to disassociate yourself with thoughts, to observe them almost as a doctor observes a patient. completely. And utterly objectively, when you have a thought and you think it, think, oh, there's just a thought. You don't judge it, you just accept it, and you move on. And over time, as you go about your day, as you're thinking about what you need to do, the sustenance that you need to intake, the rise and fall, the peaks and troughs of your own emotions, observe the impulses that come up in your mind, And don't act on them. A great professor of mine pointed out to us one day that we can't control what the rest of the world does to us. That we can't control, just like Epictetus says, externals, right? That's not under our control. We can't control the fact that it may or may not rain tomorrow. We can't control other people. But what we can control is our reactions to those things. That's how he used it. Epictetus says, at least that's the way that it's translated by W.A. Oldfather, is that this is actually moral choice. That these external things that we can't control, our reaction to them is our own moral choice. In a passage that's really wonderful, he talks about the difference between cautiousness and confidence. And he does it in two different stories. And they're really beautiful renditions of what it means to be a confident person because you know that you're acting within the bounds of what you can control and here's here's kind of how he brings it up he says when you go to see a prominent man is kind of what he's saying so imagine you know some governor senator your boss the ceo someone 10 levels above you in any type of organization that you want to move up in and he says you know Why is this person your master? Imagine someone who doesn't have moral training. Why would they look at this person and be afraid? And it's because they view this person as their master. Obviously, maybe we all fall victim to this idea at some point or another. But what Epictetus says is this person is your master because you think that they have something hanging over you, that you want and they have. And if you don't please them, you won't get it. And what Epictetus says is, okay, no way, because there's no way that that guy could have any control over the way that I view life, the way that I view death, the way that I view pleasure, and the way that I view pain. Well, somebody could go back and say, "Mm, uh, not so, right? Because that guy, if he has sufficient power over you, he could kill you. Epictetus knows that you're going to bring that up. And he says back to that, okay, kill me. And see what that does. See how I will take that like a man. See how I understand that that is not under my control and I will bear it with a smile. He shows that if you're completely cautious all the time about this small, confined, contained, controlled area, which is moral purpose, if you're completely conscious all the time of that area of your life, and guard it with everything you have because it is all that you have. Stilbo. Seneca brings this up. There's a man in some Greek city that is sacked, his name's Silbo, and he has his wife outraged in front of him, is what it says. His whole family, all of his daughters are killed. He's a big man of property. All of his property is burned. The invading army is before him. He's in front of some general or some king, and the general or the king looks at him and says, you know, what do you think, Stilbo? I took everything from you. Stilbo looked the man in the eye and he said, you took nothing from me, which is my own. And some people might think that that's crazy, right? Because this guy's had his entire family taken from him, his wife outraged in front of him, all his property taken. But essentially what he's saying is, I have my life. I have my moral purpose. You can kill me if you want. And he probably did kill him, but that's not the point. Seneca, right? You know, we all know how he died. The crazy emperor Nero, who appointed his horse consul or whatever he did, had Seneca kill himself. Everybody was really upset, but apparently Seneca was a great champ about it and told people, you know, don't worry about me. I've lived a wonderful life and I'm willing to do this. Cato is also a great example. These ideals given to us by the Western Stoic tradition and then Analyzed again through the Chinese tradition, the other Eastern traditions have made it into the United States, right? And it begins, in my view, with people like Benjamin Franklin, and it goes on with people like Ralph Waldo Emerson and then his student, Henry David Thoreau. If you're not familiar with Henry David Thoreau's story, he did this thought experiment, lived out at Walden Pond for an extended period of time. Ralph Waldo Emerson actually owned this place. Both of them could be attributed to the transcendentalist school. Ralph Waldo Emerson, a lot older than Henry David Thoreau, writes, quote, If a man loses his balance and immerses himself in any trades or pleasures for their own sake, he may be a good wheel or a pin, but he is not a cultivated man, end quote. Ralph Waldo Emerson is writing pamphlets, organizing societies, giving lectures, trying to cultivate Moral purpose within society to create better citizens. Benjamin Franklin is obviously doing this also to try to create better citizenry in his provincial towns in Pennsylvania in the 1730s, 1740s, 1750s, 1760s on into the revolution. Ben Franklin talks about how he actually achieves results. This turns into the temperance movement, which you know we should be have some guarded ideas towards temperance in this philosophical sense that I'm thinking of it doesn't necessarily mean teetotalism like we talked about it's not advocating for complete abstinence from different things, but it is advocating for a road toward more virtuous conduct by ourselves and by our fellow citizens in our own communities. And the important thing to see through all of this is that it begins with you inside of yourself and inside of nobody else. That's why it's important over these next seven days to do this, to go without things for going without sake. To be happy and to find joy in this process of discipline. And to disassociate yourself with the antithesis of what you thought was pleasure, i.e. pain. And show yourself that there is actually no difference at all between pleasure and between pain. That they're exactly the same thing. And that just like when you look at the world, right, a globe, a perfect sphere, that there are no two points that are more the same than the pole's. And that if you have pleasure on the North Pole and pain on the South Pole, that essentially the whole thing is itself the same thing. Henry David Thoreau picks up where Ralph Waldo Emerson left off, saying, quote, You who govern public affairs, what need have you to employ punishments? Love virtue and the people will be virtuous. The virtue of a superior man is like the wind. The virtues of a common man is like the grass. When wind passes over it, it bends. End quote. These two make up what is the American Transcendentalist movement. Leo Tolstoy in War and Peace, later in The Kingdom of God, is within you, and before that in What I Believe, talk about the same idea that a virtuous populace begins with the individual, that The state, and this might be a digression, doesn't need to employ punishments. Some people might contend with this, go right ahead, but Leo Tolstoy brings up a hypothetical example between the state and a murderer, and the state tells the murderer, you need to stop murdering, and then we will stop punishing people, i.e. the death penalty. The murderer looks back at the state and says, you're the one who's supposed to be teaching me things when you stop murdering people, i.e. the death penalty, or putting down uprisings. I will too. The general idea is that virtuous conduct is learned by example, that in effect it doesn't need to come down to us from a particular higher authority. It can. But we should follow the examples that have been left behind for us, observe these qualities within ourselves, and then emit... Those qualities out into the world and watch what it does. I mean, this type of conduct can be powerful. One thing that people might bring up, not as an objection, but kind of as an obstruction to this seven day process towards observing our diet and our habits and our thoughts, is that we live with other people. Some people live with their families, some people have roommates, some people have friends that it might be tough to control your diet or what you're eating when it's not really up to you. And what I would say to that is, eat in moderation. Accept what is given to you. I, I, I've heard a great example from a friend who decided that it was against his moral conscience after attending one of those meditation retreats. He had decided that he was no longer going to eat meat anymore. And I forget how it came up in conversation, but essentially he told me that when somebody offers him meat, if he goes and stays in someone's home or he's eating with somebody and he's traveling around China, he's traveling around India, he will always eat whatever is given to him, even if it is meat. And I always found that was so beautiful, right? Um, You take five precepts before you go into the meditation. Facilities, and one of them is that you won't hurt anything. And another one is that you won't take anything that is not given to you. And another one is that you won't become intoxicated. And I find this type of moderate conduct to almost be higher than anything else, that he's able to continue his process towards observation and constancy and temperance by being lenient in places where he knows he can be lenient. Again, back to Epictetus's dichotomy between caution and confidence. This guy, my friend, when you're talking with him, he seems so confident. And that's because he knows exactly the places, the small, confined, restrained areas where he needs to be cautious. And that is the areas of his own moral purpose. And that is that he's not going to hurt anybody. And one of those things is accepting all of the food that is given to him. Now, if you're being given a lot of food, do your best to make sure that they don't give you too much. And remember, even if you can't turn away all of the food, eat it thinking about eating it for your own sustenance, right? And keep that at the forefront of your mind and focus on that, meditate on that as you're eating. I think that that's just one of the more powerful things that we can do about being more mindful about how we go about our daily lives. And observing all these qualities within ourselves and examining them at the end of every day, and and again at the end of every seven-day cycle, for me these begin on Sundays, can be such a powerful process. And we're going to go through this process together. And next week we're going to be talking about silence. Thanks for tuning in.